Good afternoon, listeners. I was afraid that metronome sound was going to stay on, but it doesn't sound like it is. This is Alan Karbelnik uh, recording uh, the... F well, this is confusing. This is going to be uh, 10 uh, lectures on the key concepts of psychoanalysis. So this is actually number two of 11. The first one was an introduction where I provided kind of a philosophical background. This one is focusing on the unconscious, which deserves its place as number one, because if uh, you wanted to understand what separates the psychoanalytic approaches or so-called depth psychotherapy, psychoanalytic psychotherapy, psychoanalysis, those are all the same, at least according to me. Um, uh, what they all have in common is an emphasis on the unconscious mind. Uh, and I should point out, now in psychoanalysis, we talk about the dynamic unconscious, meaning that information is pushed down that is either too painful uh, or we're too conflicted about it or it's too traumatic or there could be biology, kind of going back to my four standard ideas I presented before, like etiological ideas. But regardless of whether you're Jungian, Freudian, Kleinian, anything, uh, intersubjectivity, relational psychoanalysis, all depth psychotherapy approaches share an emphasis on the unconscious. That's what they have in common. Cognitive behavioral psychology doesn't care about it that much. I think they do delve into it a little bit when they realize that simple things like affirmation, oh, I'm a handsome and I'm kind and I'm a nice person, do not work to really make people feel better. I also want to emphasize that outside the realm of psychoanalysis, uh, most recently, uh, Lackhart and Johnson, who are two UC Berkeley cognitive scientists, uh, have established the factual basis of the unconscious. In, uh, in truth, um, the brain is basically a disinformation system. Uh, I used to know these numbers or something like 3 million bytes per second of information that's coming into the mind-brain. And of that, it's something like, uh, I want to say 18, 15, or 20 uh, bits per second that we actually consciously experience. So what psychoanalysis is really interested in is the dynamic unconscious because the vast majority of the unconscious, again, established scientifically as a thing, is just uh, things we don't need to pay attention to, like your uh, breathing right now, how your liver and kidney is functioning, how your, how your lungs are doing. I'm using that again. Uh, the lungs, that is. But... Uh, I remember a pulmonologist once saying, you know, you know when you need to see me and that's when you become aware of your breathing because most of the time you're not. Um, now, quick uh, kind of foreshadowing of the next three lectures. They're going to be on repetition, compulsion, transference, and dreams or other signs of the unconscious. This is really the big four of psychoanalysis, but what's confusing about it is the other three are really under this uh, supraordinate heading of the unconscious mind. Uh, the tendency to get engaged in 
repetitive, often self-destructive patterns, transference, which I'll go into in separate detail, and dreams and other signs of the unconscious, what you wear, what kind of makeup you put on, your hairstyle, um, are all reference back to the unconscious. So uh, I, I, I designate them as being their own top 10. So that which makes up the first four. But let me get back now and really focus on number one, uh, the unconscious mind. Uh, so I've spoken about the dynamism of it. Let me also present uh, my kind of typical um, spectrum or uh, continuum view of uh, concepts, most concepts in psychoanalysis, definitely the unconscious. So imagine now, um, uh, imagine a continuum with will have the unconscious way on the right side of the continuum. And I want to start, and on the left side, we're going to have consciousness, because if we're going to really look at what people do when they consult psychoanalysts, and as you recall, these lectures are for potential patients, as well as for beginning uh, depth psychotherapists. Um, a, a lot of what people come to therapy with is conscious, painful material, but I want to put it on the continuum with the unconscious because of the fact that many of these things are ideas that people are loath to admit to themselves and they are, um, and, and, and very often patients are coming in talking about conscious things, but what that which they have spoken to no one else about, not their spouse, not their best friend, not their sibling. So if you imagine this continuum in, in your mind, if you would, so at the far left, we're going to have, for lack of a better word, secrets or private matters, or and they could be conflicts. They could be, I'm not sure about my marriage, but I'm not willing to talk to my spouse about it. Um, I'm having um, sadistic sexual fantasies. I don't want to tell anybody about them. Um, uh, and I'm having a little deja vu. I touched on at least some of this in a prior lecture. But that would be way on the far left because it's basically conscious. Now, as we move from left towards center, we get into this distinction between denial and disavowal, which I have talked about previously, so I will be brief. Disavowal means, technically, it's a term of art, that you know you're drinking too much or you know uh, your marriage is on the rocks. You just don't want to think about it very much. So it's, it's dissociated out, it's separated out, but still in a conscious manner. <clears throat> and um, so moving a bit more to the right, we have denial. Uh, and I use the example of this actual alcoholic that saw me many years ago, only for three sessions. And then he died about six months later. Um, his liver enzymes were elevated. And I'll never forget what, when I'm confronting him with, he was a school teacher and he would uh, uh, drink uh, three or four bottles of wine after uh, he got home from teaching every single day and then more on the weekends. He, he literally, without joking, used a line with me, well, you know, I only have one glass in my hand at a time. And 
again, not lying, but a good example of almost a psychotic level of denial, because as if, as if that made it less serious of a problem. And uh, another side point here is uh, I felt terribly about him leaving after the three sessions. I don't think it's anything I did, although I've certainly made mistakes with patients in the past. I just think he basically had chosen death and didn't uh, the alliance between he and I and between him and his own life sor sor uh, sources were not sufficient to overshadow the forces leading him toward death. Now, as we move more to the right, we'll have pure dissociated material. This is a little bit different than what is called unconscious structure. So this could be the realm of, say, um, what used to be called multiple personality disorder is now called dissociative identity disorder. I'm actually involved in a forensic case uh, related to a dissociative identity disorder case right now. There you have parts of the mind that are blanked out. Uh, and when these patients, of whom in my entire life I've only met two, but boy, are they memorable, when they're in one of their so-called altered states, and usually there is a host that is the primary self, the other parts of the mind are completely rendered unconscious. So if you go back and think about this continuum, you have disassociation. I'm sorry, I got it in the wrong order. You have uh, disavowal, which still involves a lot of consciousness. To the left of that, you have just straight on consciousness. I'm going to tell you about my attraction for my sister-in-law, which I'm not going to tell anybody else, certainly not my wife. Um, then you have disavowal, which I explain, and then you have denial, which is more unconscious. Now we move over into disassociation, which covers a wide range of, of topics. Uh, in my first set of lectures, I talked about, um, uh, the, uh, I had an entire lecture on defense mechanisms, and all the defense mechanisms could be organized under the broad title of dissociation, and they're all about shoving things out of consciousness. So I'd say now midway along the continuum, you have dissociation, all defense mechanisms, and the resultant pushing down uh, into the unconscious of, uh, and let me review the four basic themes uh, that I think cause all emotional distress, either trauma, unmet need states, conflict, or some kind of psychobiological problem or neuro, neurobiological problem. And of course, those can all be um, in concert with one another, overlapping with one another, and so on. So now we're going to go to the right half of the um, continuum, where we're dealing with purely unconscious material. Here is where you have different psychoanalytic theorists talking about the structure of the unconscious. That word troubled me for years. What they really mean are schemata or schema, patterns. Um, uh, Robert Stolaro calls them uh, recurring intersubjective patterns because he really highlights the interpersonal, the relational in his work, or as he called it, the intersubjective. Let me review the big three uh, 
big four, Freud, Klein, uh, Fairbairn, um, the big three, four if you include Carl Jung. So Freud, the unconscious, was mostly id, but parts of the ego and superego were also unconscious. And a side point about Freud, his first model of mind uh, in the late 1800s that was then supplanted by ego, id, and superego in 1923 was is called the topographical model. And that's where he talks about pre-conscious material morphing into, uh, I'm sorry, unconscious morphs into pre-conscious, morphs into conscious. And a little more about that is that, remember, the goal of psychoanalysis is not to get rid of the unconscious. That's not possible. You certainly want to bring up the problematic themes, the unresolved trauma states, the um, biologically related terror states, the conflicts um, uh, into awareness so it can be uh, processed, discussed, um, felt. I view it, another metaphor I use is it's like um, bringing up a Word file from your computer, editing it, and then saving it again. You're not really um, eliminating it. You're just uh, upgrading it, if you will, uh, shucking off some of the pain of it, um, resolving some of the trauma, resolving some of the conflicts or unmet need states, and then when it's saved again, it's not eliciting as many symptoms or as much subjective distress. So remember now we're on the right side of the continuum, we're dealing with purely unconscious material, and according to Freud, the structure of the unconscious are those three entities, ego, id, superego, all of which have substantial unconscious components. The id is is mostly unconscious, if not entirely, and that is this kind of seething cauldron of unmet need states. You'll notice as I go along, you can see the so-called relational turn entering psychoanalysis. So now we move over to Melanie Klein, who many people consider the mother of object relations theory. So she thought that in your unconscious mind, while you're still in utero, you have images of self and other um, internal objects, is what she called them, and also internal self. But her, her specific form of structure, which is rather problematic, is called unconscious fantasy with a pH. And it's, it's a pH because you, if it's conscious, it's a fantasy with an F. So you don't know you're having these, according to Klein, but they're going to affect your relationship. So if you have a particularly paranoid-oriented fantasy toward the object, which is just psychoanalysis's effort to appear um, scientific by calling it that, um, if, it, if it is paranoid in your unconscious, then you're going to greet your relationships in consciousness with suspiciousness and distrust. The main limitation of the Kleinian model of the unconscious is how do you create dynamism out of fantasies? How, if I have a fantasy of losing 10 pounds pH, and I have a fantasy that I immediately want a 
Snickers bar and that creates a psychophysiological tension in me. How do battling fantasies um, explain that? And they don't. And uh, there's a great paper by Thomas Ogden, came out in 1983. It's called The Concept of the Internal Object. It's one of my all-time favorite papers. And one of these days I'll do a lecture just on it. But that is a good transition into the third model, the Fairbairnian one, because Ogden's paper just updates and clarifies Fairbairn's model. So Klein thought this unconscious structure was in you innately. Fairbairn thought it's completely reactive. And here, both of them, I think, went too far. Klein neglecting enough environmental influence. Fairbairn neglecting enough uh, innate biological uh, influence. Uh, I meet them both in the middle somewhere. So Fairbairn famously coined the phrase dynamic structures, which I think is completely accurate. And that's the idea that images of self and other are always linked in your unconscious mind. And if Klein's unconscious consisted of un uh, sets of unconscious fantasies, Fairbairn's consists of dynamic structures, basically images of self linked to images of other. But unlike Klein, Fairbairn thought you only develop an unconscious because there's some kind of impingement uh, between you and early caregivers. So uh, you're neglected, not changed quick enough, left to cry for too long, and not fed properly. Uh, the thing that makes this of much more academic than pragmatic concern is all this happens so early, it doesn't really matter whether you believe in innate unconscious features, which, by the way, I do, or not. Uh, these impingements that Fairburn is having, talking about happen very, very early. And, um, and, uh, and that's also one of the critiques of his model. He doesn't really have a place for the so-called good object. Because he says, to use me as an example, if I'm 18 months old and I'm having a bad experience with my caregiver, I cannot stand the idea that the caregiver failed me in some way. That's just unthinkable, evil. Um, it also just makes me too vulnerable. Uh, I also spin this in kind of a Darwinian way that uh, it's a means of survival that you, you reach the conclusion, this must be me. I'm the bad one here. This is what Fairbairn called the moral defense. So I become bad and I repress the rejected part of me along with the rejecting part of the other, uh, usually caregiver. And that forms a dynamic structure. Here his theory gets terribly complicated because there's exciting objects versus rejecting objects that are internalized. Much later in his career, he agreed with Klein that uh, we also internalize good objects from the get-go, meaning we take in uh, caregivers that love us and siblings and aunts and uncles, etc. But the first part of his model and most of his career would be that the unconscious is only traumatically formed if for some reason, and of course this is impossible, you had no failure from your caregiver, you would never have developed an unconscious mind. And finally, the guy about whom I sadly know the least, but I'm eager to learn more, Carl Jung. Those are the four theorists that have the most complete models of mind. 
in the entire 120-year history of psychoanalysis. And um, uh, the, the, the big, uh, brilliant idea that um, Jung introduced is the concept of the collective unconscious. And he thought that embedded in the culture, according to his readings, which his writings, which often contradict one another, also embedded even in our neuroanatomy, are universal themes like the Oedipal complex, like the idea that we have to uh, somehow uh, make a break between the primary bond between the, our infant beings and our primary caregivers and go out and enter into the world and go through this gradual developmental process of being a so-called grown-up. But also there's uh, goddesses and gods and the archetype of the magician and the archetype of the healer and the rescuer. I personally think he was really on to something. And uh, part of his very sad breakup with Freud was over the idea that uh, uh, Freud just completely rejected the collective unconscious concepts. Whereas um, Jung, in contrast and in fairness, said, hey, Freud, I'm fine with the idea of the personal unconscious and the conflicts and unmet need states that get um, uh, repressed and suppressed and put down. But I think there's also this other universal human layer. And then uh, Freud basically rejected him, and that was the end of that. But I think in terms of understanding the structure of the unconscious, the idea of the archetypes is are very helpful. And it is a way to view the mind in more of a cross-cultural uh, uh, fashion uh, in terms of human universals. So I'm already more than halfway done. I've emphasized the universality of the just the idea of the unconscious in all methods or theories of psychoanalysis. And let me riff on a couple of examples here. Um, I'm currently involved, and this is the only patient I've had for 30 years, I want to say, in my own defense, but she started with a severe borderline personality disorder 30 years ago, and that is now, like, resolved, and um, she's taken breaks over the course of the 30 years. Can you hear me being defensive? See, that's an example of the unconscious right there. I have a unconscious conflict about, isn't that a long time to have a patient? Versus, well, it just so happens that I do. Um, but uh, I'm about to take a two and a half week trip. Actually, it's about a month away, but starting about two months ago, I review it with her because she was one of 11 children, severely neglected, had a husband uh, who told her he was uh, sterile, and then they had three children together because once they got married, uh, she got more into the idea, but there was a betrayal, like a foundational betrayal. And then, right after the third child was born, he died. And her love life since then, she's now quite a bit older than me, 79, uh, has been, she's had a couple of good relationships, but mostly not. And so what tends to happen is a, a break in our work is very traumatic for her, except when she has deliberately taken six months or a year off along the way, which she has. <clears throat> the main reason why she's back on a weekly basis for the last couple of years is because um, she's 
she just had a heart attack and she's hitting some physical disability and the specter of aging and deterioration um, is naturally on her mind. Um, so what's significant about these breaks and the way I manage it psychoanalytically is by bringing them up in advance is if there's even a week missed, um, she'll write me an email or leave me an angry voicemail. I'm not helping her or even worse, I'm exploiting her. This is like rent a friend, which I arduously work to not allow her to be. <clears throat> and um, I'm going to quit therapy. So like this time, and not that she cannot not quit therapy. She's free to stop anytime she wants. But I bring it up as a pretty good example of the unconscious because when there's a break in our connection, uh, the unmet need states, which our connection uh, brings up in her, like we're often managing it in the course of the therapy. Like what are the boundaries here and how is this different than being a lover? And um, some of the most meaningful work has been come out of the way that our relationship stimulates her, some of the childhood injuries, some of the conflicts with her now adult children, uh, some of the memories of the loss of her husband, etc. They get stirred up by the asymmetrical intimacy that occurs between the two of us. But for the most part, um, it's completely unconscious. And in fact, when there have been these enactments, uh, it's usually that she'll leave me a voicemail. Uh, I hope you enjoyed your vacation. I'm never going to see you again. I'm never going to talk to you again. Don't call me back. Uh, don't email me, etc. A really good example of an enactment of the purely unconscious mind, because first of all, these never actually end the therapies. And when we've had ends to the or breaks in the process, they've not occurred in this way. And she will have a lot of remorse and um, anxiety about it, uh, sadness, guilt, like she might have hurt me. When she comes out of what Fairbairn would call a variety of a demonic possession, uh, but um, uh, she doesn't, uh, when she's in the, in the grip of being possessed by that archaic dynamic, uh, uh, she doesn't know what's happening. And so there you have the unconscious on full display. Uh, that would be an example of transference, which I'll be talking about soon, and of also just of dreams or any other signifier of the unconscious. Um, in review, the fact that she would become enraged with me and abruptly and impulsively end the relationship is basically a living out of rage she has toward early caregivers that's been repressed is deep inside her unconscious. And the only good news is every time one of these comes up, it's an opportunity to dig into that unresolved wound. And something I think rather noteworthy is this particular time, we're both talking about it starting a month ago. Now there's a month to go in terms of uh, preventing in uh, family therapy circles, they would call this uh, prescribing the symptom um, where we're preparing in advance to prevent the unconscious dynamic from coming to the fore. So that brings us to the end of the podcast today. I really appreciate 
all of your interest and this was one of ten about the unconscious and that is one of the ten key ideas in all of psychoanalytic thinking. Thank you so much for your interest. Bye-bye.